welcome to Tipping the Balance. I'm Katie Hickey, your host, and today we hear from Maddie McMahon. Maddie has been a doula for 17 years and she runs her own doula training business, Developing Doulas. Last year, Maddie was diagnosed with a rare cancer, ocular melanoma, which affects less than five in a million people. Maddie talks about the need for holistic care, good communication, and the nuances around positive thinking. We discussed the benefits of wild swimming in cold water and how that was something that helped to bring Maddie out of a deep depression during her treatment. Maddie has written several books and we talk about her latest book, Why Mothering Matters. We discuss the difficulties of finding our new identity after becoming a parent and how finding the joy in that is important but missed out by many. Welcome Maddie to Tipping the Balance. Thank you for um, agreeing to be a guest on the show when I did my my doula training course with you it was I felt as though that week that we spent um, in Cambridge was the best therapy sessions that I had ever had sort of in my whole life I'd never been in a situation where I was in a room full of other women who had you know we shared a lot of things like wanting to learn more about ourselves and birth and supporting other women it just was the most heartwarming and um inspiring week so like actually meeting you and doing my doula training completely changed the course of my whole life so thank you for that I just wanted to tell you before we started the interview that that is so heartwarming and lovely to hear um I think I always feel like I want to say um when people tell me that that I'm just paying it forward that's all mm-hmm. yeah I mean I think because you've been a doula for 17 years is that right yeah my my 17 year old 18 in the summer uh she was five months old when I did my course Liliana Lammers teenage daughter's put her in the stretchy wrap and took her to the park. I thought maybe kind of as a start, it would be really nice to hear how you got to where you are now in terms of, yeah, you've been a doula for 17 years, but you also run developing doulas. We've got loads of strings to your bow and with Maddie's charity and doulavation and being a writer. But how, how did you decide to be where you are now from that from that initial doula training course how has it sort of evolved I think a lot of doulas tell a really similar story that they have always been a doula they just didn't know it so something had to happen some crisis or crossroads had to come along in order for them to um, have their eyes opened to who they they really are Um, and when I look back I was always the person who brought the half dead animals home (laughs) Uh, and had you know just brought people back home with me who, who were sad so I I taught English as a foreign language for quite a few years and bummed around Europe doing that and that's how I met my husband we came back to the UK to get custody of his son, actually. Mm-hmm. Uh, so my mothering was backwards. My first 
mothering experience was of a 10 year old child who came to live with us uh, when we came back to live in Cambridge. We came to Cambridge because my husband grew up around here and because there's lots of language schools and we knew we'd get work. So from being a, you know, early 20s, uh, carefree person in the space of two years, I was married and a mother. And then we accidentally started running a publishing company, publishing maps and guides for language schools. And that was incredibly fulfilling in some ways it taught me such a lot taught me how to be self-employed it taught me uh you know it it honed the skills that I had started at university in terms of writing and editing and that kind of thing Uh, and it also taught me an awful lot about what I didn't want I really I really I remember having a a day where I was going to see quite an important client and I had a suit on and I was walking down the road carrying a briefcase and I was pregnant. And I thought, I, I don't want to be doing this. I, I don't I don't know what I ought to be doing, but I don't want to be doing this. And that was my first pregnancy. But, you know, you, you put those thoughts aside because this is how you're you're making your living. And what else are you going to do? And we had one child we had a teenager and a baby on the way and we needed to make ends meet so you you sort of shelve those feelings and you know head down carry on and it took until my second pregnancy thinking okay so I went back on the phone talking to clients when my first child was less than two months old and my lovely mother-in-law was downstairs having all of the cuddles and I was on the phone in between breastfeeds, um, working, working, working. And so pregnant second time, I just had a, 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 an enormous crisis. I just broke down and I don't want to do this anymore. I don't want to run this business. I don't, I hate it. It's not, you know, we're constantly on a hamster wheel. Publishing is deadlines, deadlines, deadlines. So there's constant stress and anxiety. Uh, and about hitting targets with advertising and oh, oh, just makes me stressed even thinking about it. And I finally kind of just said to my husband, I just don't want to run this business anymore. I just don't want to do it. I want to do something different. And I want to have time with this baby that's coming. I don't want to miss those weeks and months again. And we often laugh about it because he just went, oh, thank God. (laughs) I don't want either we'd both lost our mojo and so uh we we sold the business we packed it all up uh on a whim basically um and we're both quite like that you know just do do things without sometimes without really thinking it through everything we do is an accident basically uh and so honestly we found ourselves with a teenager a toddler a baby on the way and no work we're at absolutely brassic um you know we we muddled through we were on benefits we were you know we we were putting food on the table with various things I was doing a bit of freelance bits and bobs to make ends meet and uh, the baby came and I was on a school run and we were standing in the preschool playground me and some other mums and uh, you know we were all having a bit of a moan and I said "I, I don't know what I want to do when I grow up 
and we all had a laugh, you know. And one of, one of the women said, but Maddie, you're a doula. And I said, what? What's that? <laughs> and she said, well, I don't really know, but I think it's what you did for me when this one was born. And she kind of pointed to the baby in her arms. And she said, you were the only woman in the village who came round with some food and didn't tell me what to do. And I think that is what a doula is. And I thought, wow, well, if you can, if you can do that and get paid for it, then wow, that's amazing. So I went home and Googled and I found this really lovely woman in Cambridge called Linda Hobbs. She's one that she was one of the very first Dooley UK members. And at the time she was, I think she was Dooley UK treasurer or something. Uh, and there was really only her and another woman called Jill in Cambridge who were doulas and they were only postnatal doulas. And I called her and she was lovely. Doulas are lovely, aren't they? They're so nice. <laughs> <laughs> so nice. You just get these lovely warm voices on the phone. And she was and she was like, come for a coffee. Before I knew it, I was in a cafe with with Libby, my daughter, baby baby noms, and Linda and she told me all about being a doula and she told me that you could go to births as well and that wow that really excited me wow I went home and I started googling doula courses and at the time really there was only Paramana so that was Liliana and Michelle O'Don and I think it was something like 250 pounds and so I saw that and thought well that's it then dream over can't do it Mm. you know we were so skint and so I kind of put it aside in my mind for a few weeks Um, and then I think it must have been about three or four weeks later I went to Tesco's had Libby in the trolley and I went to the cash point because we always I always had to go to the cash point see how much money there was in there get out what I could afford to on the shopping so I was going to go and get my 40 quid out and I put my pin number in and the balance said five thousand uh, pounds and I, I thank goodness I had the trolley because I would have fainted <laughs> I was holding on for dear life what is what's this so went home started doing lots of um investigations and there was an um an email and it was uh, tax credits back payment so in in you know so I am I, I always love to say this I am a really good example of good quality Labour government policies because they brought in tax credits to top up women's earnings so that they could afford to go back to work or stay at home with their children or do whatever needed to be to be done to stimulate the economy and it worked it worked for me I was able to do my training course and set up a business and I hadn't you know it was right at the beginning of tax credits I hadn't really known about them and so I hadn't applied for ages and when I finally did apply you know, I had all of this back payments. Oh my God, amazing. 
So the universe really did just go, ta-da, there you are, Maddie, doing So I, I think I ran up Liliana the next day and said, put me in, book me. Um, what did you buy at Tesco's? <laughs> when you, did Nothing. You buy no, 40 pounds, because I didn't, I, I didn't know what it was. So, I, you know, you worry, don't you, that someone's just going to go, oh, I'm sorry, terribly sorry, that was a mistake. Give me all the money back. So, you know, no, I didn't spend it for ages, in fact. <laughs> Apart from that tip, I thought, I'm going to take a punt and just spend £250. But the rest of it sat in the account for ages. We carried on being absolutely skint until I was totally convinced they weren't going to take it back. <laughs> oh, my God. One thing that I wanted to ask you in all of that, from when you said that you wanted to stop with the publishing company and your husband said oh my god thank thank goodness me too I want to stop and then and you and you did and you sold it um and then you were saying you know it was hard financially because you you were broke but you had kids you know mouths to feed and whatever in terms of your overall kind of happiness and mental health do you think that even though you were struggling a bit financially were you happier did you ever regret selling the business or were you how was that for you no um I mean obviously when you look back on life there are always some some what ifs or some if I could go back now with the the knowledge and the wisdom I now have what would I have done differently and we certainly with our experience now would have made a better go of that company. We would have made different decisions. Uh, And so that when we did want to fold, we would have come out with some profit because, you know, we didn't. We sold the company, but that paid a massive printing bill. So we came out with nothing. Mm. With my years of of business experience since, I I would have trusted my gut more. The feminist in me is going to say this. I would have spoken up for myself as a woman on a board of directors of all men more because I can look back and think you know what if we'd done what my gut had told me at that time we we would have made a better go of that business but I didn't I let the men take the decisions (laughs) that's not to say I was always right but I can identify two or three times where I felt like I hadn't piped up in a board meeting. Mm. Um, and, I, you know, I'm sure, but I know there are millions of women around the world who will resonate with that. Mm. Yeah, absolutely. And I think that in itself actually links in really nicely with a lot of the other topics that I think you and I um, are going to talk about today. Particularly just before I got on the call with you, I reread your blog post um, about the uh, ocular melanoma and the eye of the storm and the kind of the parallels in the care basically between maternity services and cancer services and wanting the idea of this holistic care and not, I mean, the reason that, that I feel like maybe I've jumped onto that topic, but you do talk about many times this idea that the doctor is in charge and there you go there's a stereotype for me assuming that that's a man um so that's my social conditioning because of course they're not always (laughs) men but 
yeah it is a kind of still feeding into that patriarchal conditioning and the society where the healthcare professional is the all-knowing person that will make all the decisions for you but what comes through in that article really well I think is that that's not what you want you you want to be the person who's making the decisions do you want to just talk a little bit about that and you know your your experience I put I put a little bit of nuance on what you just said because I think most of us especially when we're in a really really frightening place we do need those professionals to know their shit we do need them to have lots of information for us we do need to trust that their brains are the receptacles of years of training and reading and experience with lots and lots of other patients in the same position as you whether that's maternity or oncology or anything else but they need to be a conduit for all of that so that they can give it to you and make you the expert in your own care it's not you know that knowledge is not um theirs to own it's theirs to share and I think that um, all too often we we bump into uh, doctors who who are making kind of godlike decisions about what they need to tell you and what they don't, or what they need to tell you right now. You know, I think we've all heard doctors say, "Well, you know, let's just take things one step at a time," because they think they know how this goes. And I think that doesn't take into account all of our different personalities and what what we need. So rather than saying that, they should be asking, you know, what what do you feel like you need to know now? What questions have you got? And, I, you know, I think that that's happening more and more. You know, I think that they are at least being taught that they they need to do that. But they're all trying to give that kind of holistic care in a in a system that is strapped for everything, for time, for money, for resources, for equipment, for staff. Because yeah, that was going to be my next question. You know, what do you think are the the barriers to, to healthcare professionals or maybe it's the system being able to provide that kind of holistic care? You talk a bit about how you're treated in terms of compassion um and it reminded me of a ted talk that i listened to and the doctor's name dr julian abel that's it so he shows the results of studies looking at compassion and social interactions and how actually in terms of prolonging your life it's compassion and social connections um that are more effective than when he compares them to to drugs that they use to treat high blood pressure for example so compassion was more effective than actual drugs in that particular example so you know as a doula and of course I'm a doula too we know that like kindness and compassion and love make a difference and I think you say in your article it literally saves lives so Mm. what do you think are what do you think are the barriers then to to people receiving that sort of care so many aren't there and so much has been written and said by by health professionals about um, the training and the context that they're working in that ends up with situations where compassion is in short supply. 
I think an awful lot of health professionals are traumatized, whether they know it or not. And they build a, a tough shell to protect themselves from further emotional damage. Um, and it's really hard to crack that shell. I think all doulas will recognize, you know, that that midwife that you're desperately trying to make a human connection with. And, you know, you keep smiling and you offer cups of tea and you try and um, open up warm chat. You've, you, you're finding something to love in that midwife mm-hmm. and each attempt is rebutted. And it, it, you know, it's like they're frightened that if they let you in, if they let anybody in, then their whole, uh, the wall will crumble and they won't have any emotional protection anymore. Mm. I think that is part of it. I think that there's a, an atmosphere that if you come into it as a young, impressionable health professional and it's all you've ever known, then you model yourself on your peers and on your colleagues that this is the right way to care for people. Mm. Um, And, you know, and then there are the hugely empathic professionals who go home broken every day because they feel so sorry that they can't give that holistic emotional support to people. Mm. Um, And they feel so sorry about that but they you know what what can you do when you've got five minutes with this patient Mm. and 25 other patients waiting Mm. the pressure of that must be utterly heartbreaking Mm. I, I can you know there's a tiny tiny bit of me that can empathize with that running a really busy breastfeeding drop in and having you know one member of staff down that day mm. and seeing them all queue up at the door and the the adrenaline of that and the way your stomach flips mm. when you see them and the fact that it takes your attention off the person that you're talking to now mm. and everything in your brain is saying hurry up with this one hurry up with this one uh, this one's not serious. Mm. She's all right. Mm. I've got to get to that one over there who's crying. Mm. You know that the oh, yeah. and you know health professionals are dealing with that every single day for mm. 12, 13 hour shifts. I you know I I can't even begin to imagine what that must do to you psychologically. Mm. And I don't, I don't know what kind of psychological support there is for people, yeah, working at the coal face of the NHS, particularly at the moment. <laughs> um, I can imagine, you know, it's just, yeah, it would be deeply traumatizing. And I guess that is something that puts a lot of people off, you know, from from going into that profession. Um, yeah, it must be awful, mustn't it? To you know, you you think about in the doula world. And if, you know, if you have a, an absolute shit show of a birth that leaves you wrung out and traumatised and wondering why on earth you do this job um, and so worried about your client and their baby, for example, then you can throw yourselves into the arms of your warming and, lo- and loving community 
I, you know, there's any number of people who will um, welcome you to literally or figuratively curl up in their lap mm. and have your head stroked for as long as you need it, right? Mm, yeah. Um, a midwife or an obstetrician or a, or a doctor of any description has got to go home, try and get some sleep, wake up, go back to work. Mm. Yeah. Another thing that I took from reading your, your blog was this idea of focusing on health in terms of just the, the physical health, but not taking into account health as this holistic picture of your your well-being and your mental health and it made me think of the the quote there is no health without mental health I think that's that's what kind of prompted me to um have these conversations just so that we can yeah make it more mainstream I guess to make people feel comfortable with opening up about health and make, making sure that well-being and mental health are kind of at the at the forefront mm. um personally how do you kind of approach that in your own life and obviously you know there have been um highs and lows just with as with everybody has highs and lows we can't I think that's another kind of fallacy that we all everyone should be happy all the time and if you're not happy then somehow you're failing um, yeah. um and that's something that even only recently I kind of realized um, and that was a huge relief I was like oh so if I'm not happy all the time it's not because I'm doing something wrong that is actually normal um but I don't think anyone had said it to me before and I read it somewhere I yeah. can't remember where but I mean yeah how do you kind of approach um trying to be <laughs> trying to get balance or yeah your own kind of mental health and well-being is there any other certain things that you do gosh how do I get balance I think I'm 51 I've just turned 51 and I think it's taken me literally half a century to try and work out some of the things I need to do for my own mental health I am the daughter of someone with very, very poor mental health. So I was, a, as a child, I was a young carer doing a lot to look after um, a parent with bipolar. Um, so um, what that did to me is uh, make me uh, put it, uh, hold it all inside, put it in a nice tight box and put it on a shelf and ignore it. So I just was a sort of power on kind of person until I went to university. So I kind of escaped that fairly kind of toxic environment um, and was then allowed to fall apart. And that was wonderful. That was an enormous opportunity for me to get into therapy and start learning, learning about about me and about how our minds work, what we can do to look after ourselves, um, to do a little bit of emotional housekeeping from time to time. Uh, so that, you know, I feel really privileged that at the age of 20, I was, you know, I was able to learn some stuff from a psychotherapist that has, um, have been really great tools in my toolkit ever since. But that doesn't ever mean that you've got a, 
a handle on it. And obviously, you know, life throws you curveballs and you can, um, it, you know, it can knock you for six. And, and certainly this did at, at first, you know, when I was first diagnosed, I just went into freeze. Uh, I didn't move really. I went from the sofa to the hammock in the garden and back again mm. for about a month. Mm. Uh, and then I started frantically Googling and that was kind of good and bad. Mm. Um, but it was a process that I had to go through. Mm. I had to know absolutely everything. And there is so little written about what I've got because it's a very, very rare cancer. Mm. It's five, less than five in a million. Um, so I think I've pretty much read everything there is to read on the internet about ocular melanoma. Um, and so I knew, I knew what the worst case scenario was, and that was absolutely petrifying. Mm -hmm. uh, but I needed to, you know, I'm the kind of person I needed to know that. Mm -hmm. um, and I had to go through that dark bit in order to get to the bit of, okay, so what can I do to help myself? And that was when I realised that not one doctor had said anything to me about that. It was all about what they were going to do. Um, and that was the first time that I really just went, oh, okay, I know all about this. From being a doula, it's all about what's inside you and how are we going to get it out? What are we going to do to you to get this thing out of you? Not... Who are you? What's your social context? How, you know, what do you want to do to keep yourself physically and emotionally as balanced and healthy as possible whilst we get you through this bit, this medical bit that is probably going to be uncomfortable and scary? Um, just nothing absolutely nothing one doctor said to me well over the years I've noticed that people who have positive thinking have the better outcomes oh, okay then so what do I do about that how how do I how do I get positive thinking and if I'm not positive thinking oh no do I bear the guilt for that if I have a bad outcome is it my fault that I have yeah. I, I I get that he was trying to help but mm. so clumsy. Mm, so clumsy. So, so much of the wellness industry, which is huge, and I think a lot of women kind of flock to it for reasons that you've just kind of summarised, you know, feeling that you've got questions that haven't been answered or there's these huge gaps from your medical um, care providers. But so much of it, the onus is put on, if you just think positively, you can find love, you can get out of debt, you can cure cancer. And, and it is really dangerous the way that is described. And I think some in some ways, hypnobirthing, I feel the same way about hypnobirthing. It's like, just think positively and it will happen. Um, but that can be quite dangerous because when it doesn't happen, suddenly the blame is put back on you yeah. as the individual. Yeah. It's um, magical thinking. <laughs> it's it's just it's just wrong mm. and um not nuanced enough. Mm. 
because because yes absolutely if we fill our brains and bodies with that kind of you know visualizing health visualizing the 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 outcome that we want visualizing ourselves as you know in a place that is filling us with joy then we're going to affect our endocrine system and that is going to obviously have a good effect on on us Mm -hmm. and on our healing Mm -hmm. system and our Mm -hmm. immune systems um but people need help to learn how to do that Mm -hmm. and they also need uh support to understand that this isn't about an outcome it's about how you feel in the moment Mm -hmm. it's about getting you through whatever happens Mm -hmm. so Uh, yeah as you say hypnobirthing hypnobirthing is about giving you a tool to get you through whatever however this journey unfolds Mm -hmm. it's going to help you stay in the moment Mm -hmm. yeah definitely and you know I I do subscribe to positive thinking and actually like in my mirror in my bedroom I've got post-it notes of affirmations it's not anything to do with birth it's just for life and I I mean, I find that, do, you know, doing that sort of thing, if I am feeling low, definitely picks me up. But yeah, like you say, there's definitely, yeah, there's a nuance there. So what did you do then? How did you take that? Did you kind of utilise that in this situation? I um, I am so incredibly blessed. There aren't many people I don't think, who are as surrounded as I am by people who, so many people who had a little piece of the puzzle for me and who all just descended to say, what what can I give you? Mm. And so many friends in the birth world had a tool for me. And so it felt like over last summer, what I was doing was building my my toolkit. Mm-hmm. Um, so you know, a hypnoth- hypnotherapist uh, made me a special um, uh, hypnotherapy track to listen to. It was about visualizing healing after my treatment, which was um, off the scale traumatic. I got three step rewind from a wonderful Alex Heath who just who just appeared in my inbox (laughs) saying do you want do you want the oh you know just these most amazing angels surrounded me so yeah Tracy Seeley made me the the hypnotherapy track Alex rewound me um uh, there, there were just so many people I honestly one day I need to write down all of these names and and publicly say thank you to everybody who came out of the woodwork to help me. Um, And then I was also, I think everyone reminded me that I also had uh, pre-existing tools. So I was already wild swimming Mm -hmm. and everyone kept saying, Maddie, the cold water, it's so good. It's so good for you. Just keep going, keep going. And it was such a massive effort to get myself out of that freeze place 
I was in that real heavy depression and get back in the water but oh my god it it really helped mm. um Becky Talbot gave me her seaside cottage for a few days before my hospital treatment so I was able to get in her hot tub and then in the sea and then watch the crown and then get back in the sea <laughs> and then get back in the hot tub and then back on Netflix and I just did that for a few days <laughs> just while I waited to go to hospital oh that's yeah that's a massive gift um I think when when you're worried about cancer spread every sensation in your body is um is a cause for anxiety and what happens when you get in cold water is that you can't feel your body anymore and so it it's just the most amazing holiday for the time that you're in in the ocean or in the river you're you're sensation free and you feel strong because you're swimming and you're with nature and your endorphins because of the cold water are like <laughs> exploding <laughs> flooding your brain with feel-good hormones and you buzz for hours afterwards um so i i think that if there's anybody out there dealing with a crisis a physical or emotional one that would be my biggest tip is get in the cold water even if you don't know how to swim mm. just stand in it mm. it is the most incredible healing thing so if you're in cambridge where do you go wild swimming there is uh the Newnham Riverbank Club. Okay. It's about 150 years old. It's been a little membership club, um, 30 quid a year for a key to the gate. Ooh. And it's got <laughs> little wooden steps into the river. Um, it's a nudist club. Um, clothes are optional. Nice. Um, I like the sound of this. <laughs> it's absolutely brilliant come to Cambridge one day and I'll okay. take you down there um you can in the summer all the punts come by and all of the punts um you know the, the the students who earn money punting the tourists down the river you hear them coming around the corner going and this is the place where traditionally people are naked so avert your eyes if you <laughs> <laughs> oh my gosh amazing yeah, it's a great place so I didn't do very much last summer other than have treatment um, and go there sometimes twice a day when I was having a bad day, morning and evening. Um, and uh, that gave me the ability to kind of, you know, just not fall apart and be there for for my kids. And I wanted I wanted my kids to see me being strong and coping with it. Mm. Yeah. Did you feel, yeah, that you had to be strong so that they didn't get too worried? I mean, have they seen you in all kind of stages of emotion? Yeah. yeah, they absolutely have. And when I say strong, I don't mean emotionalist okay. or kind of that kind of, oh, it's all going to be fine, darlings, don't worry. Um, that that definitely I don't mean that. Okay. I mean, I wanted them to see me uh, doing practical things to try to support myself. Uh, rather than to just let lay down and let it all happen to me. 
that's what I wanted to model to them that I I wanted to find out information and to make informed decisions about my care and to do things to help myself and to have bad days where I you know I felt like shit and I wanted to cry on their shoulder um so yeah I think it's about showing the whole gamut of human emotions to your children but most importantly that those emotions pass and and that we you know the world doesn't end when mummy's crying mummy um, has a cry and then dries her eyes and gets on with life and that you know that's okay and also mummy reaches out to other people for a cuddle um, when she needs it or you know for a, a good moan on the phone to a friend when she needs it or you know she's she's doing she's modeling the behavior of how do you um, have a, a healthy emotional life it is a big responsibility that seems like such a, an understatement but mothering and feeling like you are modeling everything kind of for your children um and you know you've already mentioned um you know that you didn't have a, a model to you know a positive model to refer back to so I can imagine being a model to your children um you know in a way has has its own extra challenges because you're forging that path completely you know for yourself mm. um and and just so much there's just so much guilt associated with well, am I am I really being the best model and kind of being on it all the time on all the time all the time but yeah showing them being able to show them that vulnerability and to say yeah mummy's having a hard day today and I do sometimes say to my daughter I'm I'm not mummy's not feeling very good today I just you know you try to be kind to mommy I'm having a difficult day or something like give me a break please <laughs> um but yeah like mothering is is everything it's not all just rainbows and unicorns is it it's... oh it absolutely isn't what I would say is there is absolutely nothing good that comes from us carrying that burden of guilt um they do fuck you up your mum and dad they may not mean to, but they do. They fill you with the faults they had and they add some extra just for you. <laughs> there is nothing we can do about um, the fact that when our kids grow up, they will look back and they will say to themselves, well, you know, if that hadn't happened, I wouldn't be feeling like this or if she'd done such and such or... And that, you know, there's going to be dynamics in a family that we are not really conscious of that will have ripple effects on the way that our children feel as adults or that the way, you know, the, the internalised patterns of behaviour that they take forward into life that are laid down in those primary years. There is nothing we can do about that in terms, of, you know, it, guilt is not going to make that any better. All we can do is make a commitment to consciously parent, to think about um, how did today go? How do I feel about that? 
would I do it differently if that situation arises again? In the same way that we do with our doulering, when we come home from a birth or we come home from, you know, being with a woman postnatally, um, how did that? How did I? How do I feel about that? That mm-hmm. interaction, um, and would I want to 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 do it better next time? Yeah, I mean, I think that that takes a um, a degree of self reflection and. I guess emotional intelligence really to pause and reflect um and not I know not everybody has the capacity or maybe they don't know about doing that in terms of self-reflection I think that and I don't know if this is true but I feel like it's my opinion anyway that it's hard and you talk about this quite a bit in your book about how mothers we're not just mothering, we're usually having to work full-time jobs or or part-time jobs and also kind of run a household and carrying the majority of all of the kind of workload and emotional burden of families. There's not really always very much left to, um, to be able to pause and reflect and do things consciously in the moment. And I think that's like the biggest barrier to mothering in a way that you can even enjoy um I mean I certainly feel as though a lot of my friends who work full-time and um, it was interesting to hear what you said at the beginning about kind of selling your business and um and then feeling happier not having that but then you know worrying about money I think so many of us are in this kind of financial trap of having to stick with something and work and work and work and work but never kind of stopping to say, is this really what I want? Is this what I want? Is this serving me? Is this making me happy? And then, you know, your relationships with your children can sometimes feel frayed because, you know, when you're working and working and working and working, you know, we're not robots, we're not machines. We don't have infinite resources to be able to consciously parent work full time run a house like there's just too many pressures on us to do all of the things absolutely and you know I think I think that's one reason why I wrote the book because I feel like motherhood is the um is the part of the female experience that has been mostly overlooked by feminism first wave second wave feminism um was all about us having being able to do the same things as men and you know that's great equity of of opportunity of course we need that but actually for so many of us what it's resulted in in is us having um going about the economic activity that a man traditionally did uh, and us doing all of the traditional stuff that women traditionally done. So um, equality is not equality when we're doing more of the work than, than the men. And the statistics are absolutely clear. You know, we still do the vast majority of the housework, the vast majority of the, the child caring. And we may still be doing exactly the same amount of work outside the home. Um, that's you know that's not equity that's not equality 
at all. We're still being the skivvies, the social skivvies. And it, it's completely and utterly overlooked. Mm. So we've been put in this situation where um, we're told we can have it all, but we can't have everything we want. Mm. We can just have anything we want. We've got to make choices. And we're really lucky if we're middle-class women and we can make the choice to stay at home. A lot of women don't have that choice. The vast majority of women around the world have to keep the wheels on financially as well as as bring up their kids. Mm, that is true. And I also think there's um, another element to that of because, as you said, kind of mothering and caring is always the importance of that has been so diminished in our society that a lot of mothers, I mean, definitely in my generation, would say that they don't feel fulfilled by being a stay at home mum or being around with their children all the time and that they would go as far as to say they just couldn't do it. Um, lots of my friends say that. Um, you know, I don't know how you do it. I just couldn't do it. You know, I need to go to, <laughs> I need to go to work for, and for them that that's how they feel. They get kind of balance. But I, I do think a lot of that is to do with the fact that the, the importance of parenting has been so diminished. So they just yeah. feel as though it's not to say that it's beneath them, but that they are, they are capable of so much more or that other things are, are more important or more fulfilling than parenting it's about self-esteem isn't it and sense of self-worth um so if you've been brought up in a culture that tells you that being just a mum is something to feel vaguely um ashamed of uh then where does your self-worth come from if you're in the home gardening small humans um it, it just doesn't you know and how many times have you met a woman who says I'm just a mum and you want to hold her by the shoulders and shake her and say why what what's the just for what an amazing job you're doing you're doing the most important job that I could possibly imagine more important than rocket scientist and and judge or what you know whatever roles those that you know we see as society's um pinnacles of achievement mm. um you are creating these people who are going to be tomorrow's leaders tomorrow's compassionate members of society who will help us solve the earth's problems and build a society that is um that is loving and sustainable mm. that that's a why why are we living in a culture that doesn't see that that doesn't understand that we're not an economic drain we're not um single mums who've got up the duff so we can get a council flat this is important what we're doing and we deserve support not just financial support but the the approval and the emotional support from the whole of society so that when you're doing that job you feel valued you feel 
proud of what you're doing, whether you're doing it full time or whether you're doing another job alongside so that you've got the emotional resources left at the end of the day to be able to lie in bed and think, hmm, the way I handled that tantrum today, that didn't make me feel very good. <laughs> I wonder I wonder if I did it such and such a way next time, whether we'd get a different outcome. Or maybe what I'll do in the morning is say sorry to my kid about how I shouted at them. Or maybe I'll just get out of bed now and go in and snuggle up with them. But so many of us don't have any energy, physical or emotional energy, left over at the end of the day mm. to have those thoughts or feelings or take those actions because society is wringing every single drop out of us. Mm. And that's a crime. Mm. I mean, yeah. Sorry, I, no, I get no. really angry about it. No, don't <laughs> say sorry. It's amazing. I, I totally agree with you. And that's and um, that's interesting, just thinking about in terms of trying to find balance. I mean, it's slightly gloomy in a way, but, you know, maybe in this current culture and climate, it's, it's quite difficult or some might even say impossible to try and kind of strive to feel like, you know, you've got balance. But I think... Yeah, that's what I'm kind of discovering through talking to so many different people is that actually it's a daily thing. You know, you, it's not about it's not this idea of like the arrival fallacy that oh, just when I when I get this job or um, when I get this much money, then I'll have arrived and suddenly my life will be in e equilibrium and then I'll be really yeah. happy and everything will fall into place actually it's every day that you every day when you wake up it's like okay well what's you know what's going to happen today and when you've got small people around you know there's it's an emotional roller coaster constantly so yeah. um it's really hard work i um i suppose just because of you know the writing that i've done and uh the kinds of conversations i've ended up having with clients over the years I have found myself, again, everything I do is accidental, accidentally falling into a role of kind of parenting coach or motherhood life choices coach <laughs> to so many women who just kind of get in touch and say, Maddie, I just, you know, I'm at this crossroads and I need a sounding board. And what I often end up explaining to, to women is that one of the incredible things that happens to us when we become a mother is this uh, cognitive rebuilding and all of these new synapses um, that are made in the, you know, in those months after childbirth and our brain becomes so much more efficient and the connections are such that I think it's uh, more creative as well. And so often there's a creative solution just waiting there for us. If we can just breathe and make space enough to find it, but our circumstances often don't let us because society is saying, take the line of least resistance or do the thing that is expected of you 
go for that promotion, put up with that boss who um, sighs every time you need to go home early because your child's been sent home from school with a virus, or you know, put up with the fact that uh, you were sidelined for that promotion when you were on maternity leave and just stick your head down and, you know, stay on the hamster wheel. Or, you know, put up with the fact that actually you're not making any money out of your job right now because every single penny of your salary goes to the nursery because our childcare is so expensive in this country. And we ha- we're so exhausted that we haven't got any bandwidth left over to protest about that. And so actually, how about, you know, we, we can protest and, I, you know, I want when the pandemic is over, I think we should all get our banners and have a motherhood march. But right now, let's just think about ourselves and understand that we often can make decisions that will result in a... Um, in less stress but there's a price there is usually a price to pay and that will be money or uh, career career progression but often I have found that when women are given the opportunity to be told that they are valued and wonderful people even if they don't progress in their career the way that they anticipated they would when they were in their early 20s um, that gives them the freedom to think you know what my priorities have changed and I don't know what life is going to bring me later when my kids are more self-sufficient and I've got more time to think about what I want in life but right now what I want in life are these small people and not to pay somebody else to to bring them up Mm. um but you know that is it's it's um, it feels like that's not a choice because society's telling you it's not a choice. Yeah, I have thought about that so much. When I got pregnant with my first daughter, it was um, a surprise, and so I was just focused on my career. And that's the messages that I've been told. You know, as I was growing up, you know, the messages that I got told time and time again by my parents were, get a good job go to university, get a good job so you won't have to struggle like us. That was it, what they said over and over again. So you won't have to struggle like us. And it was all to do with career and money. And that was it. You know, nobody ever had a conversation with me about anything else, about how my life might change if I had a family. And I think I think if sometimes, you know, if they had tried to have that conversation with me, i I might not have even listened because I would have particularly, you know, as I got a bit older, I might have felt that it was anti-feminist, as you sort of mentioned earlier. I would have felt, well, no, I'm a feminist and um, I don't need to think about that. And it's only now (laughs) that I have two children and I have done a lot of that kind of soul searching and thinking, what is what is my identity? What is important in, in my life um, that I can actually look back and think, actually, those conversations would have been really valuable if, you know, if I had been willing to listen, which I don't know if I would have. But yeah, I think that there's something about the way that we are raising the next generation that does need to have needs to be more inclusive and not just be focused on so what do you want to be when you grow up you know that is such a 
a shit question um it's I remember um at my the baby shower for my first daughter that was one of these questions you know ask the dad ask the mum all these questions you know what do you want what do you want your child to be when they grow up and we both <laughs> I know like they hadn't even been born yet um, and 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 I said happy um I know that's cliche yeah. but I just I, I wrote happy and and Fred wrote the same thing um but actually I don't know how many people would have read that question and gone beyond writing something like a doctor or like yeah. a neuroscientist or whatever and I have been really fortunate to be able to take that pause and and yeah um think about what it is that is really important to me but I do it's not easy especially when you have been brought up just being told to focus on your career career money money and suddenly your whole life gets flipped upside down um, and I know you've got some quotes in your book um, from people who've talked about their identity and one that I thought was great was where she said um, it was coming to the realization that life wasn't going to be how it was before just with you know plus being a mum it was this is a whole new life and everything is different. And and I, I think a lot of people never maybe get to the point of accepting that. And that's really sad. Yeah. So that quote really resonated with yeah, me. Yeah, I, I absolutely agree. I think it is something that um, it can, you know, as doulas, especially postnatal doulas, you know, I think a lot of us find ourselves gently helping women work that out that this is going to be a new normal they're never ever going to find that that uh that old normal that that person that they were mm. that's gone and you know that's it's been so interesting for me slowly coming to that realization you know post cancer I am never going to be the Maddie I was before May and there are moments now where where I am getting to the point of that's okay. This is a new normal. This is a new me with new experiences, new lessons I've learned, new new wisdom, new new opportunities, uh, and and a new blessing of being able to extract the joy from every moment. Um. And that, you know, that is something that I really hope parenting teaches people as well. You know, mm. this is the joy of this first step and this first word. And, you know, these moments, they come and they go and they're fleeting. And we miss them if we blink. And society doesn't put the value on parents being able to extract the joy from parenting. It's all about coping. It's all about farming them out, whether that is nursery or school, um, about rounding these and, you know, churning out a next generation rather than I mean, what is life for if it isn't for joy? Mm. I completely agree with you. It, it is about supporting parents to be able to work out who they are now. Yeah. and to step into the to the joy of that mm. absolutely and I think that is something that I've asked myself 
so much is that um and I've you know I've sometimes written posts of, um, online on my Instagram or whatever saying like is is parenting really this hard or do I just need to get over myself I remember writing about that you know and just really asking myself the question of this parenting you know it's it's you're in there for the long haul it can't just be about coping like you say it can't just be about surviving each day and sometimes yeah you're gonna have days like that where you just think oh my god this is relentless and this is so hard I think you know there's a danger in us just kind of focusing on trying to find the joy in it that we diminish sometimes you know the difficulty of 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 actually being at the cold face of parenting and how it is hard but I just wanted to find a way that you know to make these years more enjoyable because otherwise I think I would have gone completely insane and I don't mean that (laughs) I I actually mean that I think I would have gone completely insane because I just thought surely it's not meant to be this no it's not and it's crap in our culture so often because we've lost community we're not we're not bringing up children in the way that we have for the the whole of our evolution as a species. And so we are putting uh, mostly mothers in little boxes all by themselves and telling them to get on with it without their sisters and their aunties and their mothers and their neighbours to hold a baby or stir a pot or share a a joke. You know, social media provides a little bit of that, Mm. but, you know, people can't lift their hands through Facebook and take that crying baby off you and take them for a walk while you have a quiet cup of tea and and regain your equilibrium. Mm. Um, You know, that for me, and, and of course that's been totally exacerbated by the pandemic. You know, it's really taken us to the absolute ultimate of social isolation. Mm-hmm. And it gives me hope really that hopefully everybody has now understood completely what it's like to parent in total isolation all by themselves with no social support and that we will rebel against that when we're able to Mm. and to come together in a more communal way to to parent our kids and it's so often what I see in the in the doula world when it works well you know doulas really creating local communities where they're in and out of each other's houses and all their kids know each other and they can dump their kids on another doula at short notice that gives me such joy Mm. to know that even if I've been the teeny tiniest part of helping that kind of community grow um that you know that's a a big enough achievement for my life for me to die happy I think that's what our ultimate goal will be is to say you know when you are at the end of our life can you look back and say you know I'm I feel you know I had a life I feel fulfilled by the life that I've done and I have you know in some ways made a positive impact and you have certainly impacted 
I mean, must be thousands, tens of thousands of families and women's you know, women's lives, and just you know, even even through the doulas that you train, and then they go on to then touch other people. I mean, it's just it's incredible. Um, so thank you so much for being that positive beacon. I'd say <laughs> in all it's of this. all it's all about ripples, isn't it? I don't think it's ever about you know one person being this like special person I kind of rebel against that Mm -hmm. a bit it is about ripples Mm -hmm. about us passing on and Mm -hmm. paying forward Mm -hmm. what we learn from each other and to give that support to other people whether that is training more doulas or talking to your clients and saying to them you know if you feel like you've had something valuable from me then pay it forward in some way Mm. be that friend who takes food round and doesn't tell them what to do but asks them what they need understand that that you know that's what we need to do as women is to forge communities and support each other Mm. um, and accept people's life choices unconditionally oh thank you maddie i think that's probably a good point to to pause thank you so much um you've been a wonderful guest and yeah welcome um it's been fun and i can't wait to hear about your life at the at the sea and uh sea swims now won't be river swims it will be sea swims yeah i have been doing lots of sea swims recently it's been great do you do you wear do you wear a wetsuit in the sea or you just go in completely no I have a wetsuit but I find that I'm so attuned to the cold now that I don't need it amazing so I've just started sea swimming which oh. maybe wasn't the most sensible time to take it up um but I haven't I mean the thought of going without a wetsuit I mean I went the first time I went with a summer wetsuit which was my husband's wetsuit so it was way mm-hmm. too big and it was a summer one um and that was okay but it was quite a sunny a cold sunny day and then I went again and it was freezing um and I just thought there's no way I could do this without wearing a wetsuit mm-hmm. I felt like when I got in the water I I yeah I couldn't breathe yeah it was a so, little bit scary at yeah the beginning if you keep going okay you're just find that that um adrenaline response starts diminishing okay um and before you know it you'll be thinking i wonder what it feels like if i take the wetsuit off uh and then you'll dunk yourself in and then the next time it'll be a little bit longer without it and and then suddenly one day you'll go oh i can take a few strokes without it on yeah, because the wetsuit actually holds me back from being able to swim because they're so buoyant. It um, and because it's in the sea as well with the you know the current exactly. and everything. I felt that also gave me cause for being a bit panicked because I was trying to swim, but I yeah. felt like I wasn't getting anywhere because I'm wearing this big wetsuit. So I yeah maybe being without a wetsuit would make physically swimming a bit exactly. easier. <laughs> so um, wetsuit socks, you know the little booty things and neoprene gloves mm-hmm. and a rash vest okay and then you can put your, you know what it's that putting your first toe in isn't it so if mm-hmm. you've got those nice little neoprene socks on that takes the, yeah, the edge and off. then yeah once you've got your feet in then okay 
Okay, you've inspired me. I'll try. Maybe maybe I might wait for it to get a bit warmer, but I don't know. <laughs> we'll see. <laughs> it's definitely easier starting in the summer and then it getting colder and colder and colder and colder. So you've been very brave starting now. Yeah. Um, but you, you do the same the same physical thing of attenuation to the cold will happen mm-hmm. if you keep going. I think they say two or three times a week, just dunking yourself in within a couple of weeks you you don't have that thing that happens when you get in yeah okay all right i need to up my frequency definitely (laughs) so i'll give that a go thank you maddie you're so welcome darling it was really really lovely to spend some time with you thank you it was really nice i really appreciate your time i know you're gay